So we're starting a new series today that uh, is going to go straight to Easter. Okay, so this is a, a longish time. Uh, not, not the longest. We've done some long series together. But this is going to be a, a little bit longer. And I have been excited about this since I think September. This is probably the, the time together that I'm most excited about. But I'm not excited about me and saying clever things. I'm excited that I think we're going to be able to have some conversations with you. That's particularly what I'm excited about. And so I don't title things well. I'll just ask Mike. He's got a title all the time. But we're calling this Unpacking. And part of what this is, we're going to, my goal is that this Easter gets to feel different. Because we've done some work getting to it. And this Easter gets to feel almost a little bit redeemed. Uh, not that last Easter was bad or anything, but that we can do some work together to unpack some stuff. And then Easter gets to be extra next week. That's kind of the hope. Okay? And what, what I say unpacking, what I mean is, uh, like there's this buzzword you might have heard of deconstruction. Some people love this word, some people think this. Or is the worst thing in the world? Here, I think this is a pretty natural word. It makes sense that when I came to faith when I was a little boy, then as I grew up, that my faith changed. And my understanding of Jesus changed. My understanding of the church changed. And I needed to deconstruct that faith and have something new. Because, uh, frankly, Jesus wasn't a 20th century white man from Sweden. And that was the first Jesus I believed in, right? So that needed to come apart a little bit. And, and some of those kind of things. So that's, yeah. Uh, so that's kind of what we're talking about. We're going to talk about different topics where your faith may be stale or your faith may not be working in some way. This series is designed for us. And, and if that's you, I want you to feel very at home right Whatever questions you have, you might not be addressing that today or whatever. Every week we're going to have time after the service to talk and just wrestle and kind of hopefully have some shared language. We also have a study that's starting this Thursday night at Martin and Susan's house where we're going to go through a book called Faith After Doubt. Uh, it's at their home in person, but it's also going to be on Zoom. If you want to be in that, um, maybe talk to Kat after church at the table or tell me, uh, I'm going to be over here today, or tell me or text me or something. We've got room for you. We're starting this week. I think there's 15 pages to read between now and Thursday. I'm going to go things um, But we're just trying to provide a space where we can do this work, right? And if you're like me, that's a exciting and scary and usually done alone. And why would we do it alone? So we're just going to do it together. Us people are doing Okay, so let's pray as we get started, and then we're going to look into at the stretch of time in Peter's life. Jesus, I believe that you are exactly who you say you are, and I also believe that I have constantly misunderstood what that means. And I don't think I'm the one. And so, for us in this room and on Zoom and Wherever else we are feeling those things, Holy Spirit, I also believe that you are with us and you are in us. And pray that we would recognize that and know that. As we venture into unpacking some things, would you be 
gracious and kind. You would give us courage, insight, and uh, just thanks for this community for this work. In your name. Amen. So as we try to find a, a like a category for this morning and where we're gonna start, we, we kind of in my mind it was like this idea of personal savior. That's the first Jesus. He was Swedish, he was 20th century, he had blue eyes, they were they were beaming eyes. He was extremely handsome, and he had some beard oil before beard oil was cool. But he was also a personal savior, and if that's how you see Jesus, there is nothing wrong with that. But my understanding of personal savior was kind of uh, unsatisfying. My understanding was that if I prayed some words, and if I behaved some way, then eventually I would go to heaven. And that was the good news, and that was Jesus, and that was my personal savior. And that worked for a minute. And then it just wasn't really satisfying, right? And I think there are a lot of us there. I think there are some of us who that is still satisfying. And God bless you if you're there. But there's no judgment. I believe those things are true. They, it doesn't require much effort on our end for us to encounter the living Jesus. I believe that Jesus does have things to say about the, what we do and don't do. I think the reason is more than just a morality. I think there's other things at play, and I think we are promised life eternal. But I think this has looked a little different than I first believed. And so as we start to do this work of unpacking, we're going to look at a stretch in Mark's Gospel. Uh, if you have a device or a Bible, it would be helpful to open those. Open up whatever translation you want. Uh, I am in the NRSV, so we're going to read that one out loud, but um, it would help to open to Mark 8, and we're going to start in verse 27, we're going to go through 9 and 8, just so you know what we're trying to tackle today. I'm not going to do it every verse, but I'll tell you. So 8.27 through 30 says this, Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Jesus asked them, but who do you say? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Okay, a couple things that stand out in this that I want to make sure that we're seeing. First, anytime that it says a place, it's a little bit relevant. Like, paper was expensive, or scrolls were expensive. So if they're choosing the right words, it means something. And sometimes it's good for us to pay attention. Why do I know this city? Why do I know this place? Why do I know this area or this country, right? So Caesarea Philippi, is named after King Herod's brother, Philip. And if you want to read a fascinating read, go to Mark 6 and read why Philip's interesting and Herod's interesting and John the Baptist and all of this stuff. But it is a highly political city that Herod just came to and said, hey, I know you all have been called something else, but I now call you Caesarea Philip. 
And because he had power, he just changed the name of everything. Changed the name of the people. And it became like the place for emperor worship. It became the place to say that the, the emperor in power is a god. So it was this highly political and uh, religious center. Okay? So he's heading into that place, and we'll, we'll see some of the ramifications of that later. He's heading into that city and says, who do you say that? Now in verse uh, 29, most of our English translations say Messiah, right? You're the Messiah. The actual Greek, and I'm not trying to be like geeky here, but the actual Greek is Christ. And those are very similar, but it's very relevant that it's Christ at this point. Because the only other place in Mark, or the only place before this in Mark, where the word Christ is, is in Mark 1.1. So it says it in 1.1, and then nowhere in Mark's account until right here. Why does that matter? Well, in Matthew, we know that in Matthew's account is that Jesus says, this didn't come from man. You didn't call me the Christ of the Messiah from man. God revealed this to your spirit. God gave you this. God gave you this awareness. Right? So that's why it's it's not just semantics, it's pretty important that we say, oh my goodness, that's it. It's a way of showing that God revealed this to people. Okay, it's a stage, not a stage, it's a place where we are sometimes, where we come to a realization, where I came to realize, Jesus was my personal Savior. Where I came to know Jesus was my Messiah. Jesus was the Christ. It's a, a time when God really, really reveals to us who Jesus says, and that is a real moment. And that moment counts. But if you're like me, or if you're like Peter, some other moments follow. We don't necessarily know what that revelation means. You track it with me? Like it counts? It's real? But look at what happens very next thing in this text. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. I don't know about you, I don't want Jesus ever to look me in the eye and say, get behind the Satan. And anybody he does that to, I don't really want to align my thoughts with that person's thoughts. Right? But if we let this text read, Jesus is saying, hey, you're right, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, and I need to go and suffer and be rejected and die and all this. And Peter's like, oh, that's not what Messiah is. That's not what I believed the Messiah would do. That's not what my people believed the Messiah would do. And I, I'm, I'm making a, a little bit of a parallel for us here that there are a lot of times where our understanding of Jesus does not understand or line up with our, our experience with Jesus. I'll say it again, kind of. Our understanding of Jesus sometimes does not line up with our experience. 
have to choose something. We have to choose if we kind of allow Jesus to reform our understanding, or if we start to reform our experience and understand it in a new light, or if we distance. Whoa, you're, you're wrong. My understanding was correct. And, and you need to correct your theology, Jesus. This is kind of what people are meaning by this term deconstruction. It's not as scary as we think. At the time of Peter, everyone understood that Christ to be only triumphant, only victorious. And then when Jesus comes and says, hey, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to die, everyone who believed that he was the Messiah had to say, what? I don't know if you're the Messiah then. You're either not the Messiah, or I misunderstood who the Messiah is. It's a point that they went through in Jesus' day. It's a point that they went through in the early church, in the later church, in the reforming church. It's a point that's happening right now. Hey, my understanding of Jesus is changing. I grew up kind of without suffering. Much. And then when people that I love start to suffer, it meant something different. When challenges came, when, when the equations of faith were A plus B equals C didn't turn into C anymore, I had to see, am I doing this wrong? Did Jesus lie? Or did my assumption, was my assumption just wrong? Do I need to rethink some things and follow Jesus in this different place? Is that making some sense? Okay. So this next part, um, we're actually not going to talk about right now because I would geek out and we would be here till 3 o'clock. Um, but I did write a little something on this verse where Jesus says that those who follow him are to deny themselves, take up their cross, and we can follow him. It's in the resource page on Becoming One Back Church Track. We can send it out to you however you want it. Uh, I think it's only a couple pages. But go ahead and read that out if you'd like. This, this verse has been very misused. It's been used to hurt some people. And it's actually a really powerful verse. What Jesus is saying is really powerful if you read it kind of in context. I, I want to encourage you to do that and we can discuss it. We're actually going to have a Sunday night, like a Sunday night school thing like we used to have at the end of February where all these topics, any of them that you want to talk about, we'll talk about on Zoom. Uh, we have the night to do that last February, or last Sunday in February. Okay, so now we're, I want to, I know I'm having to jump all over the place, but we just left this moment where Peter's rebuking Jesus, and then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, which is a pretty, like, terrifying sentence. If Peter is like me, Peter then goes to the house for three months, because he just heard that he did something wrong, and he's sure that Jesus never wants to go and hang out with him again, and so he just, he just sits and they sat. That's not what happens. If you go to verse 9-2, we see that six days later, Jesus is still hanging with Peter. And he takes Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. 
Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, for they were terrible. And then a cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore but only Jesus. Okay, this is top ten things I would love to be there for. This is it. Like Peter just gets rebuked. I don't want to be Peter. I want to be like the fourth guy that gets unnamed. You know, there's Peter, James, and John, and then little Maddie from Minneapolis who's following behind. And they go up on the mountain. And then Jesus is transfigured. I have never known what to do with this. I looked at like seven commentaries. They definitely don't agree with each other. Here's what I really think is happening. Jesus is always God, right? The whole time. He's fully God, fully human. At this moment, I think these three got a glimpse of the fully God part. And they didn't die. If we have spent time in the Old Testament, we know that that is fascinating. They didn't die. They're terrified because they're supposed to die. But they see Jesus all bedazzled in the best that heaven's got to give him. In whom Jesus fully is. And they experience that. I want you to think back. Spend a little bit of like a second in in what Tony Morrison called remembering. Like, do you remember those experiences you had with Jesus? Wasn't it one or two times that were maybe you didn't see him all bedazzled with the best of heaven, but those moments where Jesus was more real than the chair you were in or the ground you were standing in? These experiences for us. Transformative. They help us beyond the deconstruction stuff to realize that God is something. It's it's worth moving past just tearing things down. Like to actually experience who God is. But it's not fun just constantly living on past meals, right? Like, oh, last Thanksgiving was awesome, and I haven't ate since. That wouldn't be fun. And it's draining for any of us who are living on past experiences with God. And we haven't had one like that for a month, or a year, or ten years. It's draining. Our souls become hungry, thirsty. It makes sense that Peter says, can, can we just stay here? We'll make some super cool tents that you can live in. Now he is not saying, like, let's set up a carnival. Or a circus. This is like tabernacle language. This is like Abraham, when he encountered God on the mountains, he would set up a tent there and that would be where he would worship. That's what's being said. So can we stay here? We've experienced the fullness of God. Can we stay in this, what, what, what the generations before us called, can we stay in this thin place? This place where heaven and earth are touching. It's so real. Can we stay in this experience of you, God? In this mountaintop experience. That's literally what this is, right? Have you ever been there? Where you, you have experienced God on a mountaintop, and then you're like, can I just go back there and try to recreate it and set up the tent and go to the mountain? Can I just live mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop? Because at least that's better than going 10 years without another experience. 
Some of us are satisfied in this naming. I have named and realized because of the power of God that Jesus is Lord. And go on. Sometimes we can be satisfied with our freedoms. At some point, most of us, maybe it doesn't work. Something happens in our life, a disruption in our family, or church, or something, where we then say, this what I thought I believed, it, it doesn't line up. And this isn't like a formula, but at some point, we start to like have to deconstruct, okay, Jesus has to be more than just my after-death Savior. Jesus has to be different. Scripture reads different, and we start to deconstruct. And sometimes if we deconstruct too long, we lose hope. The sad part of deconstruction is like we usually do it on our own. And often we leave the church, we lose hope, and we start to forget. Jesus was because we had so much other stuff to take us back. But as we start to pull away things that aren't Jesus, we get to again have an experience of Jesus. And some of us are okay eating out that moment memory. Ten years ago I felt Jesus in this way and it still satisfied me that I know that I experienced Jesus in this way ten years ago. But most of us at least are like just 10 years, so I'm going to try to recreate it. I'm going to go to another retreat or camp or another religious experience. I'm going to try to make that connection happen at church in, in, in some way. I need that emotion, that experience again. I'm not judging this for anyone. All of them are real. What I'm saying is I don't think Jesus is satisfied with any. Jesus, I think the Holy Spirit confirmed it within us that He is the Savior. I think when we begin to pull away things that Jesus is not, the Holy Spirit is like, Amen. Only see me for who I am. I think Jesus is so good that He gives us experiences of who He is. And it's so good that when we try to go back to the same places or recreate those spaces, He meets us again. I think He's so good. But I don't think that was ever Jesus' intent. So for the next couple months, I want to give us a phrase that we're going to kind of use as, as our shared language, okay? We together are trying to kind of deconstruct, to not reconstruct again. We're not going to deconstruct to bring our stuff up on a mountaintop and build a tent. Because what would happen is then we would have to deconstruct that construct something else. Instead, we are doing the work of deconstructing to reattach. Because I think if we look at Jesus' language, and there's, there's, there's books we just read together in our spiritual direction on, by Dallas Willard. If we look at Jesus' language, this is that you have to go somewhere, you have to think somewhere, you have to But his language really clearly is this. I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. His language is very clear. Father, just as you and I am one, may we be 
one with them. May they be one with one another. That's where invited to yes, experience Jesus in in clarity of language, like naming and deconstructing things that he isn't, and experiencing God in profoundly emotional and real ways, and even going back to those same spaces in those thin places and celebrating. But in the mundane, when it's just Tuesday and you're doing laundry, the hope is that you're still attached to Jesus. And you're not working your way there, and you're not striving. And the things of like behaving better and all these kind of things make some sense because, like, well, why would I attach to something else when I've got the Messiah, the Christ, who wants to be attached to me? And we're going to just kind of study a little bit of what this means for the next couple months. If you don't really get what I'm saying right now, that's okay. Uh, no, I don't think I completely get what I'm saying. I do believe that God has some things for us, so we're going to look at like what the gospel is. And who did Jesus see Jesus self as? How did the early church see this? We're just going to kind of slow walk this. And what is it going to look like for us to not find the Holy Spirit just out there, but to begin to believe that the Holy Spirit is in here? Because we say it every week, right? We're going to close in this way. We're going to receive communion. If you don't uh, have it, go ahead and raise your hand, and Connie's going to bring us up. Um, after, after the service, if, if you want to talk about this stuff and you've got ideas or questions, there's nothing thin space about this area. That's just where we have to be. So we're going to go over this way. Um, if you want to be a part of like leading those discussions or posting on Zoom or just caring for people, there's some sign-ups in the back. The cat's going to be back there. Um, we don't ever want to be pressured for you to like exhaust yourself for the church. But we also don't want you to think there's not room for you to be part of it. So we're just figuring that out. But before we go into that, let's receive this communion and let's pay attention to the words that, that Jesus said. Let's remember, in light of this attaching kind of thing, Jesus is hanging with his, his best friends, one of them being Judas. 